Good morning. I love the change of seasons because it does this to my voice. So <laughs> I was like, oh, it'll get deeper now, but that didn't happen. Very fun. Anyway, so I could get exhausted by the time this is over, but that's all right. As I was singing the first song, I was like, nope, can't, can't do that full force. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. So anyway, today we're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, and Paul, well, Paul's letter to Ephesians, and we're reaching the halfway point of the letter as we work our way through the second part of chapter three today. Now, Paul, a lot of times, will put all the theology-heavy stuff at the beginning of his letters and then get into uh, some more practical application in the second half of his letters. And so that's kind of what we see with Ephesians 2, but we're not quite there yet. We'll actually get into that next week. But I just want to recap kind of what we've looked at so far in the first three chapters. We've seen Paul introduce the letter. We've seen him give praise to God for the blessings that the Lord has given to him and his readers. And Paul then thanks God for the Ephesians and describes a prayer that he is continually praying for them. Then he explained the gospel and how they're saved by grace through faith in Christ as a gift of God. And this is followed by a declaration that God has made the two separate groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one body in Christ, the church. And finally, we looked last week at how Paul explained the mystery of Christ and that how the Gentiles are now heirs with Israel and they share the promise in Christ Jesus. This week we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 and, and it's a fitting conclusion to the first half of the letter. In this passage, Paul offers up a second prayer for his readers. And this prayer in verses 14 through 19 are just one long sentence in the original Greek which has been a trait uh, throughout his letter, and it's in a few of his other letters as well. For example, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, they were one long Greek sentence. This prayer is actually the fifth of these long sentences in the letter, which is not uncommon for prayers. But this second prayer does pick up on and repeat some of the themes that we saw in the first prayer in, that we read in chapter 1. In the first prayer, Paul was praying to his readers that they would know God and the hope that he called them to the riches of his inheritance for them, and to know his great power. In this prayer that we're going to be looking at today, Paul is praying for them to know Christ's love and to know it with the other saints. Now, since this passage isn't really that long, I'm going to start by reading the whole thing. Then we'll go back and we'll take a deeper look at the individual parts. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts his prayer in verse 14 by saying, For this reason I kneel before the Father. Anytime we see something like for this reason, we, we want to go back and look at at what he's talking about, what he's referring to. 
And so if you look back in the previous passage that we read last week in chapter 3, we actually see the same thing at the start of that passage. It says, for this reason. And if you remember, we talked last week about how Paul was seeming to start writing his prayer and then interrupted himself because something triggered in his mind. And and he kind of interrupted himself and, and talked about that, and now he's getting back to it. But if we go back a little bit further, we're going to see the passage before this, and that's where we read that Christ has made the Gentiles one with the Jews, one body with Christ as the head, having access to the Father through the Spirit, and made into a new temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with the chief cornerstone being Jesus. So it's for that reason that Paul has moved to pray for his readers. And he says, I kneel before the Father. Now we see Paul's posture here before the Lord, one of bowing the knee. Now as I studied this throughout the week, this week, I noticed that the writers had come in and all of the, all the writers, all the commentators that I was reading, they all made note of this, that, that Paul actually made that note. But the reason is because there's really no specific posture that's mentioned in Scripture when you're talking about prayer. We see examples of people who are standing to pray, as Moses and Solomon did. Others sat to pray like David did when he prayed for the future of his kingdom. Jesus is described as, as falling on his face when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as Warren Wearsby writes, whether we actually bow our knees is not really the important thing, that we bow our hearts and our wills to the Lord and ask him for what we need. That's the vital matter. Now, Paul continues in verse 15 where he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So he bows before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, there's a little bit of a word play here that we don't really get in this, but you can kind of see it in the Greek. The word for father in verse 14 is patera, while the word for family in verse 15 is patria. It gives a sense that the family relates to the father. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from the Father. And so you have every family in heaven starting, he says, starting about that. But that's referring to heavenly beings, angels, most likely referring to that. God is called the Father of spirits in Hebrews 12, 9, the Father of lights in James 1, 17. So there is some precedence for that. As for the families on the earth, that would, of course, be people. And it says that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from the Father. Every family. And that means that God is the origin of all beings. He is creator of all. As Peter O'Brien writes, they owe their existence to him. Following this, we move to the actual prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, starting in verse 16. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul prays for the Ephesians that God would strengthen them. Specifically, his prayer is that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen them. We've seen a few times in this letter where Paul mentions the riches of God. In the letter, in, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says the riches of God's grace that he lavished on them. In chapter 1, verse 18, it's the riches of his glorious inheritance, that inheritance of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, it again, it's talking about the incomparable riches of God's grace, which was expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8, what we looked at last week, Paul preaches the boundless riches of Christ 
And then that brings us back to verse 16. And what this shows us is that Paul is asking God to strengthen them, strengthen his readers according to God's riches, which, as we've seen throughout the letter, he pours out on his followers. But what's Paul asking for? He's asking God to strengthen them with the power through the Holy Spirit in their inner being. The power of the Spirit is what enables us to live a Christian life well. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends back into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A Spirit-powered life is one that will do amazing things for the kingdom. When you read the book of Acts, you see the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. Warren Wiersbe writes about the power of the Spirit. He says, Jesus performed his ministry on earth in the power of the Spirit, as we see in Luke 4, verse 1 and 14. And this is the only resource we have, really, for Christian living today. Wiersbe continues by quoting something that somebody has said about the unfortunate nature of the church. He writes that someone has said, if God took the Holy Spirit out of this world, most of what we Christians would be, are doing would go right on. And nobody would know the difference. That's what makes this prayer so important. Not just for Paul, but for us today as well. That God would strengthen us with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, in our inner being. Now, what's the reason Paul is asking for this prayer? Find that out in the first part of verse 17, where it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The heart's a vital organ, right? Like, seems pretty vital. Like, it's that thing that just drives your circulatory system and pumps blood throughout your body. And, and as soon as it stops working, that's not good. It's not good. That's anatomy, though. But when Paul's talking about the heart, when any ancient Israelite that we read is talking about the heart, they're not talking about, most of the time, they're not talking about the organ that's pumping blood in your, that's beating in your chest. The heart, as they're talking about it, is really the whole person. It's the self. It's representing your person, the, the intellect, the spiritual, the emotional. Similar to what we might say today, we talk about that kind of thing today. We say things like this, you know, spiritual emotions, those tend to come from your heart. Intellect, we've moved to the brain because, you know, we, we think we're smarter now, so we move that up there. Um, but back then, a person's self or being was described as the heart. So when Paul is saying that he's asking God to give his readers that power in order that Christ may dwell in their hearts, it's not like, you know, a literal physical person, you know, taking up residence inside one of your, one of your whatever chambers in your heart. That would be weird. Um, but it is indeed spiritual. And we talked about the Holy Spirit indwells us in the heart, the self. And that's where that happens. Second Corinthians one twenty two says that God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. Or Galatians 4.6 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. There's another way to look at this, though, as well, specifically in the verse that we're looking at in Ephesians 3. 
verse 17. This comes from Harold Honer, who wrote a commentary on Ephesians, and he writes that this verse is not a reference to Christ's indwelling at the moment of salvation. Indeed, it denotes the contemplated result, namely, that Christ may be home in, that is, at the very center of or deeply rooted in believers' lives. Christ must become the controlling factor in attitudes and conduct. So basically what he's saying is that your heart needs to be the place where Christ would feel at home. And that everything we do, every attitude we have, every action that we take is driven and controlled by Christ. I mean, it's not that much different from the other ways to look at the verse, but there's a little nuance there, I'd say. All right, let's get into the second thing that Paul prays for, the Ephesians. Verse 17, second part of verse 17 through 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul starts by making a statement about the readers. And and remember, there are already Christians He writes, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Love. The Greek word that's used here is agape. Same word that's used to describe the love of God. We see it used again in verse 18 as the word that describes the love of Christ. Love is the foundation for everything that we do. Love is why God sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice. Love was why Jesus chose the cross. And this type of love, it seeks the highest good for the one who is loved. Love is what these two illustrations are talking about. We're rooted in love. There's an agricultural reference there. When you plant something, you got root systems typically under the ground. You don't always see them. But that's how plant gets its nourishment, right? Same is true for us. And how we're rooted, it affects our faith. Psalm 1 talks about this. You remember when we did our psalm series over the summer? The person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night is well-rooted. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 1-3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So whether we root, or when we root ourselves in love, we, and specifically in the love of Christ, that will continue to feed us, and we're going to bear a lot of fruit in terms of our lives and how we relate with other people. Because we're going to look at them through a different lens, a lens of love. And not ours, but Christ's. Now the second illustration is that they were established in love. And what he's got going here is it's a picture of architecture. It's having a foundation to build on. When we built the foyer uh, out there, uh, we, I say we like I had anything to do with it. <laughs> when they built the foyer, they built a foundation that is incredibly strong. Like They went pretty deep with it, and, and I'm pretty sure that foundation could hold a building way bigger than what the church built. Warren Wiersbe talked about one of his building projects he had at a church he pastored probably up in Chicago. He said there were, they were struggling because they had to spend several thousand dollars to take soil tests because the building was over an old lake bed. And then for weeks, the workers laid out and poured the footings. And he writes that he complained to the architect one day, and the architect said, Pastor, most important part of this building is the foundation. 
If you don't go deep, you can't go high. And whereas we said, that sentence has been a sermon to me ever since. If you don't go deep, you can't go high. You got to have a good foundation. Otherwise, your building's not going to be structurally sound. It's going to go down when enough hits it. It will crumble like the house that's built on sand that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But again, we want to be like the Ephesians, who Paul says were rooted and established in love. So now that we have that, let's see what he prayed for them in verse 18. Looks like Paul, again, is praying for power for his readers. But the word's actually a different word than what we were using before in Greek. This word leans more toward having a strength or a capability to do something. So he's asking for them to have the capability to grasp two different things. And also, Paul does, doesn't limit this to the Ephesians, but he, he says that he prays that they may have the capability, this capability together with all the believers, all of the Lord's holy people, with all the other Christians outside Ephesus. That capability is to grasp two things. The first is to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To grasp, to have an understanding of the vastness of Christ's love. To, as one writer put it, lay hold of it yourself. That's what Paul's asking for his readers and all the other Christians. Like, we can comprehend something, but we don't always make it our own. Like, you can have the head knowledge, but you don't make it your own. We need to lay hold of the vast expanse of God's love. But that gives us a question. How can we even come close to laying hold of that? Because that's what the next part of the prayer is is talking about in verse 19. Paul prays that they could grasp the second thing, which was to know this love that surpassed knowledge. What? Like, how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? That that doesn't make sense. It seems like a paradox to me. And... uh, But that's a technique that Paul uses to show something different than what he's saying. Like, we cannot fully comprehend God's love for us. It is incomprehensible. It is beyond the capability of anybody to grasp it fully. It surpasses knowledge. But I think Paul is saying that he wants readers to continue to know, to experience Christ's love. And to know that even when we think we get it, there's more. You can have a pretty good understanding of Jesus' love, and yet there's still more that we don't know. Still more to learn, still more to experience. And we wonder at how wide, like wonder, awe, you know, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is for us, but it's immeasurable. And yet he loves you with that love. He loves me with that love, that immeasurable love. How do we respond to that? We worship. That's why we come here every Sunday morning. That's why we live our lives in such a way. It's to honor him. We probably don't even scratch the surface of grasping his love for us. And the final part of this prayer, this intercessory prayer, where Paul is praying for his readers is, he asks that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And the fullness of God is found in Christ. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul notes that God's fullness dwells in Christ. And all that God is dwells in Christ. As Klein Snodgrass writes, in in experiencing Christ, Christians experience the fullness of God, his presence, his power. In experiencing that fullness, they themselves are made full by Christ. 
That is, they partake of God's own being and are made like him. And it's an ongoing process. It's sanctification. The more we are in Christ, the more we are filled with the fullness of God, the more like Christ we will become. Paul then concludes his prayer with a doxology, which is basically like a formula prayer to God. For example, we sing a song that gets referred to as the doxology. It's the one that says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Another doxology that <clears throat> you're probably familiar with is the end of the Lord's Prayer, which most scholars you know, don't believe is in the original Greek text, but it's part of how we pray it. It's the part that says, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. So Paul concludes his prayer here, and he's got a doxology with it. And it shifts the focus of everything. Because the rest of the prayer was focused on being for the Ephesians, right? For the readers of his letter. But now the focus shifts to God. And he prays in verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can imagine. We turn our focus to God who is able. Paul describes God as able in a couple places. You got Romans sixteen twenty-five or 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And what's God able to do? But maybe the better question is, what's God not able to do? Because the way Paul describes it is that he is able to do more than we can ask. More than all we even ask or imagine. Like it's not even just that he does more than we can imagine. It is immeasurably more. We can't, can't even quantify it if we, if we wanted. We can't comprehend it. We cannot limit God. That is not possible. That is the God we worship. He who is able to do immeasurably more. So how do we worship him? Well, we give him the glory in all that we do. We say, as Paul said, to him be glory. It's honor, greatness, power. To God be glory in the church. And to, to what we do as the body of Christ. That's where God's power and splendor get displayed in his followers. And to him be glory also in Christ Jesus himself throughout all generations forever and ever, unbound by time for eternity. To God be glory. And as Wiersbe writes, he's able to do all above all, abundantly above all, exceedingly abundantly above all. I read of a Scottish father who took his son to the top of a high hill. And when they got to the top of the hill, the father pointed all around as far as the eye could see. And he said to his son, God's love is as big as all that. Probably bigger. And his son looked at his father and said, then we must be right in the middle of God's love. We can't measure God's love for us. Not how wide or how deep, how long or how high it is. But we know that he loves us and we know it because of what he's done for us. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, there are wars and famines and dangers in this world, but God loves us with an immeasurable love. 
And yes, we're broken too. We sin, we fall short of God's glory. But God still loves us. And we know that he loves us because he sent his son to take on flesh. To take our sins, to die for them on the cross. We know he loves us with an immeasurable love. To close out today, I just want to pray this prayer of Paul over us. We're going to serve communion directly after the prayer like normal. I pray that you take time to thank God for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But if you bow your heads with me as as I pray this prayer from Ephesians. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.